0: Investors are being barraged at the moment with headlines and soundbites about when the next recession may hit. And while there are certainly risks on the horizon and weak spots in the economy, it may make sense for investors to step back and consider today's fixed income markets through a broader lens.
1: It's an orderly earnings decline. It doesn't have the sort of panicked Uh, Feel to it that many of those big blow up events have. And as a result, I think the outcomes will be much, much better than perhaps the market
0: was predicting. That was Martin Horn, head of public fixed income at Bearings. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion. Coming up on today's show, putting today's fixed income markets in perspective. all right martin horn welcome to the podcast pleasure to be here i'm excited to have you back here there's uh, so much to talk about in the world of public fixed income so i want to dive right in and uh, maybe we can start high level just kind of at the macro level we see and hear lots of headlines and lots of interpretations about what is going on in the economy right now are we heading into a recession are we not heading into a recession A lot of the data that we see are often conflicting. Now, you've got a really unique position in that uh, you oversee Behring's public fixed income businesses with over 70 investment analysts covering different uh, companies ranging from high yield to investment grade, developed market to emerging market. So you're actually seeing what's happening on the ground uh, or what we're hearing from a lot of these companies directly. So with that context and perspective. Let me ask you, what are you actually seeing when it comes to corporate fundamentals today, kind of from the bottom up?
1: Yeah, I guess it's one of the interesting parts of the job is the, the lens you get on the data that maybe the the public markets don't see. And the access to management is always kind of engaging. The The numbers that we're seeing pretty much reflect the, the public numbers that everyone is seeing. Uh, they're a mixed bag. There's some companies that have dealt with inflation relatively well. There's some companies that are exceeding expectations because they've held on to their pricing power for longer, even though some of the inflationary pressures have have dropped away. It's not so much about today's numbers, though. It's about what management are doing about it and, and how you can interpret the relative outcomes. Because I think in my career, this is probably the longest predicted recession or pathway to recession that we've ever known. Uh, We started talking about the economy inflationary pressures in Q4, 2021. And then that obviously exacerbated with the Russian invasion in Q1, uh, 22. And then you know what happened for the rest of uh, 22. It was all about kind of central banks got into the winter of potentially discontent where uh, actually sentiment was as low as I've ever known it in terms of people predicting bearish outcomes. And we've been through that. And actually the outcomes were better than expected. Companies dealt with inflationary pressures. The consumer kept spending. The winter wasn't as harsh in Europe as people expected. There weren't big power outages, production disruption and all of that good stuff. And and now we find ourselves uh, where we are today. Um, So what do I take away from it? The one thing is I know what it's not, and it doesn't look like... Uh, a Lehman's type economic contraction. The reason I make that contrast is that um, people forget that when you're in 2008 and on the run up to the Lehman's event in uh, September of that year, um, actually when you went around and spoke to most management teams up to about halfway through 2008 and you'd say, what are your forecasts for 2008? They were a bit down, but they essentially think that 2009 was going to be a rebound to 2007's level. 2007 was a bull market year. And as a result, their balance sheets were totally still geared up for growth. They were still spending on capex. Their cash flows weren't as thick as they could have been. They uh, were building up inventories like growth was coming. They hadn't dealt with any of the headcount issues. They haven't dealt with any of reduction in marketing spend They hadn't dealt with any reduction in general overheads. And so when the big event happened, the big blowout happened, what happened was much, much more exacerbated from a corporate earnings perspective because everyone all of a sudden stopped trading with everyone else. And the reason you did that is you'd you'd spent a lot of money on CapEx. You had a lot of inventory that you then were worried you weren't going to sell. You had a lot of raw materials you were worried you weren't going to be using. And so there was this almost a corporate freeze and you had the big, big, big earnings crash. The, the context of where we are today is because we've been talking about this thing for so long, pretty much every company that reports tells you about what they're doing about their cost base. Their inventory levels are being managed on a thin basis. They are gearing their cash up and trying to delever the business because they know when they refinance, it's gonna be a lot more expensive. And so there is this long lead time in a way has meant that we, whilst we might be moving to, I think almost certainly an, an earnings decline, it's an orderly earnings decline. It doesn't have the sort of panicked uh, feel to it that many of those big blow up events have. And as a result, I think, the outcomes will be much, much better than perhaps the market was predicting, certainly what the market was predicting when we went back to October and we had the LDI blow up and we were just moving into winter time and inflation was still on an upward moving trajectory. I'm realistic about the future. I think we earnings will continue to decline to a certain extent. That's what central banks need to see happen. They, they never say it that way, but they, they need the heat to be taken out of the economy. Mm-hmm. But actually, balance sheets and consumers are in much better place than they have been in some other big um, events. And we should not forget that the big anomaly about this um, particular situation is that in a lot of jurisdictions, uh, employment is still near full natural employment, Mm. you know, in in the US, in the UK, um, where um, economic situations are constraining Actually, most people who want a job can get a job, even with the, the cuts that you're starting to see through some of the white color industries. Employment isn't the issue. And while the consumer is employed, they're likely to keep a level of underpinning demand on a lot of industries um, that, that mean that the bottom won't be as bad
0: as perhaps it could be. Yeah, labor market and the consumer are still in relatively decent position. And uh, I don't know, Martin, you're, uh, you're, you're bringing up some tr- traumatic memories for me as a, as a former Lehman uh, employee. That was a tough, uh, tough thing to go through. But uh, it actually is a, a really nice transition because I wanted to ask you, obviously, we've seen uh, some real volatility in the financial space this year. Obviously, we've seen the high-profile bankruptcies of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank in the U.S. and uh, this kind of forced marriage between UBS and C.S., uh, on your side of the pond as you look at fixed income markets broadly how all of this kind of action in the financial sector is impacting your view when it comes to restricted credit availability or or any other kind of knock-on impacts
1: yeah I think look again I I, I always try and remind myself when you're in the middle of an event of what history tells you not that history is a great reflection of of um, current market, because actually everything moves on, everything evolves and every situation is different, you know, and here we are in another unique situation. But it is worth kind of reminding ourselves that after Lehman's between 2008 and 2012, you had more than 90 banks a year go under. And so um, the market right now is kind of reflecting that we've been through the credit crisis, the SVB uh, blow up, very different situations um for different reasons uh different structural issues going on there um what they weren't in either case really was a a bank that had a capitalization problem in the sense that they had a big bunch of uh, defaulted assets that were going to kind of blow the lights out on any sort of safety cushion you had credit Suisse was just a materially underperforming bank for a long long time and then when sentiment moved against that bank what you tend to find is that banks nowadays, in this era of apps and uh, Twitter, mm-hmm. are much, much more vulnerable to a deposit run than they used to be. You know, you can do everything electronically. Back in the Lehman's day, I remember Northern Rock, which was one of the UK banks uh, building societies, went under. People were pictured queuing up to get their deposits out. And obviously, right now, all it takes is a tweet and a and an app, and you can move uh, money really, really quickly between financial institutions which means at a certain level to headline risk, banks are vulnerable. Credits that just the sheer volume of headlines proved too much for it in the end and the kind of mismanagement issues it had. SVP um, uh, obviously um, had an asset liability mismatch when it had to go in and try and liquidate assets to meet calls. It really struggled and its unique sort of client positioning um, was, was an issue as well. And as at the time of this recording, we got First Republic, which is under the lens as well, because sure. it, it produced its numbers last night. And people have seen just how significant that deposit withdrawal was. So these are different forms of bank risk. But when you put it in the context of 2008, first of all, um, banks are far, far better capitalized. Uh, yeah, there are um, there is scrutinies on asset pools like, you, you know, your commercial mortgage exposure in the U.S., which are going to bring certain banks under more scrutiny than others. Um, but actually, we've seen far worse from the banking sector. Central banks and governments have shown a propensity to move in and, and provide confidence uh, to the banking sector when it is required. And you saw that with the kind of Fed's very quick action um, when some of these headlines all of a sudden revealed themselves. Um, so what's the kind of impact of all of this? It's certainly the banks will move with an element of more caution uh, and that is likely to mean that lending conditions remain somewhat restricted from that market from from some of the enterprises that relied on bank financing specifically to capitalize themselves that's not so important in the liquid markets where you know banks rarely underwrite um, over a longer period of time their, their whole mantra is to underwrite and sell down and then have the uh, the trading of the names uh, go between different counterparties. It provides an opportunity for the private markets, potentially, because if banks take a step back, they can step into that gap uh, and demand, you know, structural protections and and, uh, income levels uh, in excess. Uh, And it it probably puts the power in the hands of the lenders, not the borrowers. If you've got capital, you can deploy it with more security, with uh, better power around structuring with better income potential. That really is the kind of sunny side look at look at all of this. Uh, I just mentioned that for our developed market high yield business, we have never uh, been involved in banks and, and the, the kind of unique nature of the risks here are that you have very rarely have complete transparency on what is on those balance sheets. So as a, as a house, we've always been somewhat cautious uh, about the kind of exposure we take there. Um, tends to orientate itself towards the the bigger liquid opportunities in the investment grade arena and and the uh, EM arena. I don't necessarily think when you put this into a historical context, uh, the banking situation is as big a game changer as certainly we saw in Lehman's and the sovereign debt crisis. I think those were much bigger issues. Doesn't mean there won't be headlines, particularly probably the day after we send this recording out, (laughs) there'll be some big headlines. Um, But I think you've got to put those headlines into context all the time of what we've seen before and what the magnitude of those risks really are.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, um, let's say we do head into an economic slowdown here, whether it's induced by banks pulling back on credit or some other factor. Are there sectors that look to you more vulnerable than others if we do see this kind of slowdown uh, scenario play out?
1: Yeah, I think that, look, you, you probably put the vulnerability in two categories. Um, one is the absolute default vulnerability. And, you know, it's not that interesting for people to hear you say, look, all the cyclicals and consumer discretionaries are clearly in a weaker economic environment. Uh, those would be the ones that you'd be focused on. Um, What I would say, though, is um, you remember the historical context of where we are. Um, We're in 2023. In 2020, we obviously had COVID. 21, we were still in lockdowns. 22, we had inflationary markets. And here we are in 23, and we're dealing with the long walk to uh, a sort of economic contraction stroke, stroke recession. That means that these businesses in cyclicals, There's neither been a significant amount of risk appetite around them and their ability to access excessive levels of debt has has been um, somewhat curtailed by all the events that we've seen over the last four years. So whilst I wouldn't necessarily advocate dialing in in significant form to cyclicals this side of really having visibility on the kind of depth of that economic contraction, I don't see a lot in, and I'm just going to talk to the high yield market for one second. I don't see a lot in um, the high yield market where those industries are full of very, very levered names. They'll be the odd faller. There always is. The conservative conservatism in, in placed on these companies has meant that they've had uh, to live under a slightly more um, constricted in, uh, environment. And the long walk into this sort of economic decline has meant that those businesses as well have been somewhat um, preserving cash, keeping inventory levels low. All the stuff that we talked about at the outset of this discussion, um, those companies, they are well aware of their vulnerability to an economic downturn. And and they have been trying to manage around that. So I, I think, yeah, the obvious ones will suffer. Downgrades are probably a more realistic situation that they'll have to deal with. Where you care about downgrades most is probably an investment grade arena in terms of the asset pricing impact, but there's also some some high yield names that that the CLOs might start spitting out eventually. We'll we'll see how kind of deep that goes. Again, at the moment, earnings have not looked horrendous. Sentiment tells me one thing. Sentiment is still pretty negative. I, I saw a very negative survey coming out of US consumers today. But the reality, the fundamentals have held up much better, and we will see how management teams continue to manage through this process to get them through the other side.
0: Well, they say uh, stability breeds instability, but I think your point is basically that looking back over the last few years, it hasn't actually been a real environment of excess, right? We've been dealing with the pandemic and inflation and everything else that you mentioned. So um, perhaps some of those excesses have not built their way um, into the system. Even so, though, you're seeing some forecasts out there calling for some pretty material rises in defaults. So you look at some of the sell-side forecasts out there calling for as high as 10% default rates in 2024. Uh, What do you make of that? And do you think that there's any likelihood of that? Or do you think that looks way too um, negative?
1: Well, the, yeah, if you're at 10%, you're kind of at Lehman's. So, you know, from the discussion we just had, do I think a Lehman's economic contraction is on? I can't see any way that that can happen. They, they may be coming at it from the fact that they're looking at uh, refinancing uh, needs uh, growing over time. And again, I, I would draw them back to 2020, you know, one of the most bizarre times in all of our lives. I remember very clearly opening up my laptop on the first day of lockdown not knowing if anything was going to work, but knowing I had to sound relatively confident that it would, and then we uh, got into you know fork trying to forecast what happens to the levered uh, corporate market uh, and the unlevered corporate market or the lowly levered corporate market when essentially businesses are flat, they can't produce anything, they can't sell anything. We've never seen an industrial shutdown uh, like it since World War II, and and thankfully. Uh, none of us are, are, are old enough to kind of remember what that looked like. Uh, I remember distinctly the first brave analyst that came out with forecasts basically said that defaults in 2020 would be somewhere between 75 and 25%. And whenever <laughs> right. you see that sort of range on a forecast, you kind of know that they, that is just guessing. Right. Uh, and, and to be fair, who could do anything else right. but guess during that time? Uh, and the way it, it ended up in 2020 with loads and loads of companies effectively not being able to earn a dime, um, was um, in most of the high yield categories, it was somewhere between 3 and 5% defaults. So does 10% with that context for next year seem realistic? No, that doesn't seem realistic at all. Um, the market is somewhat pricing like we're going into a really big event, and I suspect we're going into a heightened level of defaults. But um, 10% just sounds excessive. Debt markets find a way to make things work, even when it looks really difficult. And we saw this through Lehman's and sovereign debt. and We saw this through the commodity cycle. We saw this through Q4 2018, when there was a difficult moment. Essentially, they, they look to keep companies alive and earning because they know that um, they need to keep these companies in a state where they can continue to operate because that maximizes their value. And so when we look forward to refinancing risk next year or the year after, assuming that rates stay elevated as they were, I would imagine, um, given that there's only so much cash um, a company can use to service debt, you're going to see some picks, you're going to see some creative um, equity options, you're going to see some refinancing fees. You're going to find that the debt market guys find a way to keep the company in a solvent position because it's in everyone's interest to do so and to take economics in a different way than the market is implying and and that's the, that's the experience from years and years of doing this, and I I can't see any reason why it wouldn't be in any, everyone's interest to make that happen again.
0: Now you mentioned the pandemic period, and uh, obviously we saw quite a bit of rating agency action uh, during that period. Uh, obviously, not wanting to get caught flat-footed and trying to get ahead of. Uh, any deterioration in credit fundamentals. You would imagine the same thing would be happening here if we start to see more and more signs that we are, you know, in fact, seeing an economy that is slowing. So what's your kind of level of concern around credit rating downgrades at this point? Do you expect that that may you know, have a material impact on the overall picture for a high yield or not so much?
1: Well, high yields and, and investment grade, I wouldn't separate the two uh, when it comes to downgrades because equally, you know, they they can lead to asset price declines. Mm-hmm. I'd say to you that downgrades are bound to happen. Downgrades are bound to become elevated from where they are today. But let's put that in context. Our team, investment grade and high yield team get together on a quarterly basis. And the last time they did this was at the end of the Q4 Earnings season. At that point, their view on upgrades, uh, rising stars uh, versus downgrades, fallen angels, was that upgrades and the potential for upgrades in various companies outstripped downgrades by about one and a half times to one. There were substantially more companies that are likely to be put up into investment grade at that point than were going to get downgraded part of that is because obviously we had a fairly big downgrade profile coming into the COVID crisis and a lot of those companies have got through to the other side of that you can see the likes of Rolls-Royce and Heathrow and activity levels um, picking up so there's certain industries that you know and and we've got to kind of remind ourselves that um, we only came out of full lockdowns in 22 and, and it seems like a lifetime ago but it it wasn't that far ago in a, in our kind of lens. And we've only just had China come out for certain in, in industries just this year. So mm-hmm. um, when you, when you think about the real impact of COVID and lockdowns, we're only going to get a clean year. Uh, at the start of of, of twenty four, so you know, again, there is earnings upward revision coming from various global companies that is is not quite in the numbers yet. Do I think that kind of sunny side up view holds? No, I suspect it it will equalize and and maybe even depending on the depth of what we're going to see, maybe move to the downside and be more downgrades than upgrades. That's kind of logical, isn't it? Do I think it's a really, really bad downgrade cycle in the, in the context of what we saw in some of those more dramatic economic events? doesn't look like it today. Um, and let's have a conversation in a quarter or two and, and maybe we'll revise that. But from what we can see today, it doesn't feel like um, that's the way that the market is going to go. And so again, this kind of all orientates itself to is the market pricing action? Is it overreacting to the negative sentiment because we just don't know? That kind of is what normally happens, and we just don't know. Um, But we can draw some analytical conclusions from from the context of everything and and really um, drilling down into just how likely a a, a very
0: bad outcome is. Hard to say what the Fed and other central bankers kind of do from here. Uh, It probably is data dependent, uh, to use the, the terminology that they usually use. But we do know that we've been in this rate hike cycle for a year now, and uh, one of the uh, consequences of that is that cash has become a much more compelling place or a store of value, I should say. Uh, for investors. And we've seen in in, in really quite a long time now, uh, obviously, having been dealing with, you know, negative interest rate environments in different parts of the world, et cetera. This is a new factor, or at least new uh, in, in kind of recent years. And, you know, as a result, we've seen material flows into money market funds. Um, so I'm curious, as you think about the different fixed income asset classes that, that you look after, um, you know, whether it be high yield or IG or developed uh, EM, et cetera, how are you thinking about the relative attractiveness of fixed income generally uh, relative to cash?
1: Uh, well, relative to cash, I think everything is going to pay you more. Uh, that, that's a bit of a sweeping answer. But, you know, fixed income is about credit and credit has a maturity date. Uh, of some worth, I think the vast majority of companies will be able to refinance themselves. And from the pricing point we are today, that, that it's going to restrict cash. It doesn't mean that volatility won't be a, an issue. You know, we're going to see if there's a couple of banks that get themselves into an exciting position over the next few weeks, we're going to see some volatility, that's for sure. Almost certainly need the equity markets to correct. And they, they are doggedly sticking at the kind of ranges that, that we've seen uh, from sort of February, March onwards. But there's lots of commentary that if you believe that there's an earnings erosion on the way, that the P multiples don't look that exciting, you know, 18, 19 times forwards is, is, is still kind of feels like high if you're going into a recession. But again, there's a huge bifurcation of views out there. Um, so dragging myself relentlessly back to the point of the question, you know, what, <laughs> yeah. do you think, what do you think is um, attractive? The rather unflattering answer, it really depends on what you're trying to achieve I'll tell you things that I think you are getting paid to do. You can take duration risk in in things like corporate IG. I went around the Middle East to see some investors in January, and I had a deck with me at the time that sort of showed them that if you looked at where the global ag is, which is a kind of seven-year duration index, if you moved interest rates up on a seven-year basis, 100 basis points, or moved it down 100 basis points, you got four times the return from a downward movement in the 10 year, sorry, in the seven year, than a uh, 100 basis points upward movement would negatively impact your asset pricing. So a four to one bet on on in terms of upside downside from taking duration was the kind of headline that you were going around with. Uh, you look at it now and w- the, the 10 year is 10 basis points away from that 360 position that we saw back then. So I really don't think you're going to see a lot of negative movement from taking duration. And that means that if you want to go safe and you you want to sort of play in the up in quality, which most people on most financial news services, you get the managers rolling through and they say, go up in quality. That That's a very easy thing to do. If you don't want to take any duration, you go into CP because that's a very easy thing to do. I do think um, that there's better yields to be got based on my view that I think the market is kind of overreacting to a certain extent on the outcome we're likely to see. But obviously, you've got to review that outcome. But I also think that, you know, you have so many options within fixed income. You know, in IGs, you've got corpse or sovereign developed market. If you want more juice, you go EM SOVs, you go to the private IG market, structured credit, infra. Securitized, high yield you get under corporates and or SOVs you get in the in the privates area, some of the EM areas, structured credit, all of these options are available to you depending on what you're trying to achieve, more so than any time in the last 12 years, 10, 12 years, that actually fixed income looks a better bet than equities right now. It just uh, if that's the kind of classic um, portfolio decision that people are making. But it's way too simplistic to say one thing is good and everything else is bad because um the just the sheer weight of negative sentiment means that the markets are doing what markets always do and pricing very wide to what I think a realistic outcome is likely to
0: to show you. Now we've we've talked around this idea of whether or not we're heading uh into a recession. You've made it pretty clear that. Whether or not we are heading into a recession, your expectation is that it's, you know, certainly nothing on the scale of, you know, some of the worst ones that we've seen in our lifetimes. But let me ask you this, because, you know, you've been managing fixed income portfolios through a number of ups and downs in economic and business cycles. Is there one or two experiences that that jump out at you um, from, from that hands-on experience that are kind of guiding you on, on how to steer the ship today?
1: We we've mentioned some of them. Um markets always overreact to the upside and the downside. That's a kind of theme. Don't think that I, I I don't share I in this kind of view that the market is an all-seeing lens of purity in terms of pricing risk. I, I just think markets are imperfect at different times. You just kind of know when to take advantage of those imperfections. Investors find a way to make things work, you know, even when even in the darkest times of the COVID transition, we found a way to just sort of, okay, we think these are good companies. We don't think COVID lasts forever. We're gonna bridge this. We're gonna put capital in where we wouldn't normally put capital in, but we can see that there's a kind of rational way to approach this that leaves companies solvent and and maximizes returns. And I think that will happen again. You won't time it. Pitching high yield today with an investor that's uncertain about the outlook. I can make a very analytical case around that in terms of the premium to uh, investment grade how much defaults are getting priced in relative to things like Lehman's and sovereign debt and so forth. If you can make that case to investors in a clear, coherent way, you've got to encourage them to just kind of layer in. Maybe you don't go all, all all in on the first month. Maybe you layer it in, and, and a quarter later you layer it in, and then you layer it in some more as the data makes you more assured about that decision. But on a, you know, if I think about the high yield market, for example, on a three-year maturity. Um, average maturity um, kind of index, what you're getting paid today at at yields of 8.50 and plus just looks way, way, way more excessive than it should be. You know, average price in the market for sort of single Bs anywhere between 86 and 88 on a three-year maturity, that wouldn't normally happen. There's different points in that market that I would access, but I I think some principles hold true. Um, And you've just got to kind of remind yourself of that sort of common sense approach not try and overthink it, know what you don't know, all of these kind of catchphrases that that come to mind. But they serve you pretty well. Don't try and time it. And markets are right now pricing in a, a very excessive way from anything we've seen in recent history.
0: All right. Last question for you. And I, I may make you repeat yourself here. I'm not sure if I do. I apologize. But, um, but let's say you're an institutional investor uh, or allocator. Uh, m- responsible for managing a fixed income allocation today. You've got a multi-year horizon. What one move would you be making today to try to set yourself up for long-term success?
1: Again, the, the problem is, it's what are you trying to solve for? And I think what you've got is a myriad of options. So, you know, are, are you trying to solve for income? Well, frankly, income's everywhere. Income used to be the battle for most investors I don't know, back in um, the the kind of 2019, how do I make income? And you'd see people making more and more excessive bets just to get income through the door and deal with kind of long-term liability um, requirements. Um, If you want safety, you've got options um, around either moving into secure debt or IG, depending on, again, what the rest of your profile looks like. If you're worried about duration, you can do sort of commercial paper, sort of daily draws, uh, structured credit or loans, both in the public and private markets. All of these things are variable rate notes and, and don't give you kind of particular duration exposure. I think you're, uh, as I said before, I, I don't think duration should be the battle you're trying to fight. I think any way you cut it, you know, if, if the, ec- the economy is going to weaken, then duration is is probably last year's uh, uh, event, he says. Um, we'll, we'll see. In the next few months could um, make that look very foolish, statement and then geography um people want diversification when you uncertainty is there diversification is a a strategy and we we've, we've been overweight some keystone um markets that you're very familiar with uh, and, and maybe taking off the uh, generic u.s bet and diversifying that i'm not saying the u.s market to me um still looks like a, a very solid market but I, I think you can diversify that by looking around Um, European equities, for example, have have thoroughly outperformed their US counterparts um, so far this year. EM is obviously a very under allocated uh, marketplace. And then uh, obviously volatility and there's lower volatility asset classes like the shorter data stuff, the variable rate stuff, the loans, the privates. Because if I went into a room with 12 investors, I'd probably get 16 views on what the outlook is going to be. And uh, I think Rather than go and dictate to investors, you should be thinking about X. Um, you really got to ask a more kind of intelligent question. Uh, no offense, Greg, uh, but but it's about really what are you solving for? What what's what's the weakness of your portfolio given your outlook? Because yeah. um, I recognise that I've just given you a view today, but it is a view based on my my kind of read of history and and the analytics that we're seeing at the moment. But it could be wrong and we might have to uh, sort of challenge ourselves as the year goes on, as more data points roll through. And I I think rather than going and dictating to investors, you give them a perspective, but then you say, "But what are your concerns and what are you solving for? And they've got a myriad of options right now.
0: Makes sense. It's uh, yeah, completely dependent on uh, what you're trying to solve for. But uh, you have uh, very kindly just teed up probably my next five podcast episodes where uh, some of the asset <laughs> classes that you mentioned from structured credit to EM debt, to IG, uh, and others uh, I'm sure we're going to be talking about um, quite a bit in the weeks and months to come. So there's a lot going on in all those spaces, opportunities and risks uh, kind of across the board to be considered. But um, Martin, this has been great. Thank you so much for taking some time. It's great to get your perspective Um, as always. Hopefully our listeners um, got as much value out of this as I did, but uh, appreciate it and uh, have a good rest of your day. No problem, Craig. See you soon. Thanks for listening to episode number six of season eight of streaming income. If you'd like to stay up to date on our latest thoughts on asset classes ranging from high yield and private credit to real estate and emerging markets, make sure to follow us and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. We're on Apple podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and more. We publish a new episode every other week. And if you have specific feedback, you can email us at podcast at That's podcast at B-A-R-I-N-G-S dot com. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.